are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Uh, Psalms 85 and verse 6. Psalms 85 and verse 6. Now we sang last night, Revive Us Again. And that's a good song for Baptist people to sing. And I'm glad you sang it last night. I hope you'll sing it again before the meeting is over. By the way, tomorrow night I want to bring you a message on the doctrine of salvation. The doctrine of salvation. And I'm going to put out negative what salvation is not. The doctrine of salvation is not. And then positive what the doctrine of salvation involves. But, but tonight here's a favorite text of Scripture. Familiar to all of you in the building. Psalms 85, verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Now, have I read that correctly? I sure have. Wilt thou not revive us, not me, revive us again, that thy people, not the people of the world, they know nothing about revival. They can have no revival. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people... Uh, may be saved? No, it doesn't say that. That thy people may rejoice in their wealth, in their health, in their houses, in their lands? No. But rejoice in thee. Will thou not revive us again? Now I want to speak to you tonight on revival. We're concerned about revival. In my experience, and I guess I've been in just about as many churches as any preacher alive in America now, every week somewhere I preach somewhere in a different church, every week of my lifetime, and um, glad it's been that way all these years. But I've had opportunities to contact various churches, all kinds of churches, large and small, evangel evangelistic and cold, and uh, some that are uh, zealous and some that are not. I've been in all kinds of churches, beautiful buildings and brush harbors, storefronts. I've been in all those churches. And I think the average person in America uh, doesn't really know what revival is all about. We've gotten to the point in 1983 that we equate revival with uh, with large numbers, or we equate revival with uh, the numbers baptized. And nowadays, revival and evangelism are spoken of, or at least thought of, and many times spoken of, as synonymous. The same thing, you see. The average person in the pew, when you say revival, they think about how many people went through the baptistry. Or when you think about revival... Uh, say revival, you think of evangelism. When actually, revival is not evangelism. And that, if I could teach that point to you tonight, then my sermon has been successful. Now, I believe in evangelism, and no church in North Carolina believes in evangelism more than gospel light. And I commend you, and I said that last night. I commend your pastor, who, is, who has an evangelistic zeal and compassion and burden, and does a tremendous job in his community and in his church, in the field of evangelism. But I insist, my friend, that evangelism is one thing, but revival is quite a different thing altogether. And it's wrong for you to give the impression to your family, to give the impression to those with whom you may witness. It's wrong for you to give the idea that revival and evangelism are the one and same thing. Now, you'll never have genuine revival until you learn better than that. I believe that evangelism is the fruit of revival. And I have never known a church that was really revived, but what didn't have a consistent evangelistic outreach and a consistent and persistent evangelistic result. 
But I say they're not the same. Rather, revival is the need of the hour. And the natural result of revival is going to be evangelism. But nowadays we've gotten the heart of the horse before the cart. And we've twisted around, you see, the cart before the horse. And we've twisted around. And we're trying to evangelize with churches that know nothing about revival. I don't think that's true at Gospelite. I don't think that's true at Tabernacle. And other churches I know about, I think, have the right order and the right uh, uh, persistency and, and the right interpretation. But I find many churches, I mean good, independent Baptist churches who we are, uh, that uh, equate everything to evangelism. I one time heard a Baptist preacher, if I would call his name, your pastor would know him and many others who you would, but I'll not do that. But I heard this man say, if when I preach, nobody walks the aisles, I'm dead. And I quote him verbatim. If when I preach, and he was not an evangelist, he was a pastor who made that statement. If when I preach, nobody walks the aisles, and he meant by that, nobody gets converted. He used the terminology of walks the aisles, and we understand what he means by that. If nobody walks the aisles, he said, I'm dead. And I thought to myself, I pity you. I didn't make an answer to him, but I thought in my heart, I pity you. With that kind of attitude, why, why are you preaching? According to his testimony, the only reason that he's preaching is to win people to God. Well, what's wrong with that preacher? Not a thing in the world. Winning people to God is a noble thing and a great thing. But the motive in my preaching is not that altogether. There's part that, but certainly not that altogether. I don't think it would be that altogether if I were an evangelist, but certainly as a pastor, I have other duties and responsibilities as a pastor in addition to evangelizing, you see. And I, I don't think a church can be grown to be a well-rounded unit, a well-rounded local church uh, that is purely and entirely evangelistic at the neglect of other duties and responsibilities of a local congregation. For example, uh, our church is known to provide evangelism, but we're to provide a place of fellowship. And I preached about, the last, about that last night. The importance of being at peace among yourselves. Our church also is a place to recruit preachers and missionaries. You can't neglect that. Our church also is an avenue to raise money to get the gospel message around the world. You can't neglect that. The next week, the Lord willing, the tabernacle beginning coming Sunday is our annual missions conference. And I wouldn't try to make the missions conference and tabernacle an evangelistic campaign. The one thrust of our meeting next week is going to be to challenge our people to pray and to give and to volunteer to get the message out around the world. Now, if we have evangelism, we'll be glad. We'll be glad. If God saves somebody, we'll be happy. But the main thrust of our meeting next week is missions, you see. No church can do what it ought to do and be what it ought to be without an, a, a missionary emphasis. We must have that. By the way, your church also is an avenue of scriptural training, Bible training in our Sunday school. There is nothing that Gospelite does more important than your Sunday school. Nothing more important than Sunday school. Did you hear what I said? And I, I don't think, I think it's wrong to make a Sunday school an evangelistic arm. Now, I tell you, like, oh, many of those I've baptized come to our Sunday school. And I'm glad for that when that happens. Almost every month we baptize somebody from our Sunday school, a child, a young person. I'm proud and happy about that. But I say to you, Sunday school is not an evangelistic ministry, not an evangelistic arm, basically. But Sunday school is a training ministry of a local church. 
training men and women and boys and girls in this book, teaching them the Word of God. And, and when you get away from that, I think you've, uh, you violated the basic, one of the basic things of the Great Commission. And it becomes the great omission when you neglect training, you say, teaching them, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And so the church has many uh, arms that reach out to people, many responsibilities under God that we shall give an account under God for, in addition to the noble arm of evangelism, you say. And so tonight I want us to deal not with evangelism, and my message tonight is not evangelism. My message is revival. I brought this sermon that I'm trying to preach to you now to a group of preachers over in Illinois a few months ago. And I had pastor after pastor come to me and said, Preacher, you hit the nail squarely on the head. We've been giving ourselves all together to evangelism. And like the pastor I quoted a moment ago, if nobody's converted, then he hangs his lips down and he begins to hunt the can in the camp. You'd be surprised how many pastors, Baptist preachers, if nobody walks the aisles, they get up and begin to thrash their people and beat their people and indict their people and hunt for the A-can. Right. And when you do that, you're going to destroy the church. Why not let God in His natural time and in His good order give the increase as He wills? I will never forget Dr. Bob Jones Sr. I had the joy of preaching with him some in conferences a few times, preached at Tabernacle a time or two before his death. He and I lived in the same city for a long time together. He went to heaven, oh, 1966, I believe, or 67. But I've heard him say, don't you destroy my vines. I can hear him say that right now. Don't you dare go and pluck green fruit off my vines. He said, let that green fruit alone. He said, it'll drop. It'll drop. I can hear him say that now. And brother, that's right. That's right. It'll drop. When it's ripe, it'll come. I tell mothers and dads, you train those children up, keep them in church, and when they are at the right point, God will get them in. They'll come. They'll come, sure as you live. And Dr. Bob Jones is saying, in your haste and your eagerness to get somebody into the baptistry, don't you pluck green fruit, don't you destroy my vine, you let my vineyard alone. I've heard him say that. Right. And how important that is. I don't want that to happen at Tabernacle. I want no evangelist to come to Tabernacle and say, I've got to have so many people saved. I remember years ago, 1948, I believe it was, I preached in a meeting over here at Greensboro, and I'll not name the church. I think I could, but I, I, I believe I could. Anyway, I'll not name the church. That's beside the point. But on Monday night, I, before I got up to preach, the pastor said, and I never forget this, he said, we are expected 150 people to be saved this week. Brother, if I wanted to jerk on the coattail of a preacher, I wanted to jerk him down and say, Shut up! Who are you to tell God to save 150 people? What authority do you have to tell God how many you want saved this week? Now, we didn't have 150, and I knew we wouldn't have uh, when he made the statement. But what an idle word that is, you see. Now, what we need is revival among God's people. Now, let's get back to our text. Have I shown you the difference? Revival, evangelism. Let me give one other illustration, and then I'll get into my text. I remember years ago, I was listening to the radio, the Bob Jones radio station at Greenville, and Dr. Oswald Smith, whom I've never met, I've heard of him all of my lifetime and read some of his books and have several of them in my study, but I never had the joy of meeting him. He's going to be with the Lord now. But uh, he was preaching over the radio, 
and I had my radio tune listening to him, and he said something that I'd never heard another preacher say in my life, but I believed it in my heart, though I'd never heard nobody say it. He said, evangelism and revival are not the same. And I thought that, and I believed that, and I meditated upon that, but I'd never heard a man of renown make that statement until I heard him make it. And this has been 30 years ago, I guess. And when he made that statement, I said, well, what about that? I've been thinking that and pondering that and bold enough to say that a time or two myself, but I've never heard a man of the caliber of Oswald Smith to make that statement until then. And how true it is. Evangelism, wonderful and noble. But that, that isn't my subject tonight. I'm speaking on revival. And they are not the same, and I'll show you. They are not the same, sure, the same, surely. Now the text James, Psalms 85, verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Several things about the text I want you to know. First of all, my text implies memory of past revivals. Wilt thou not revive us again? The very announcement of that request, uh, the very reading of that verse, implies the memory of past revivals and past victory. Oh, how we need that. Many a young person has never seen a real old-time revival. Oh, they see evangelism, that's good. But to see an old-fashioned revival, many have never seen, in our day, many have never seen a real revival of old-time religion. Well, the saints of God sang and rejoiced in fellowship and shouted the praises of God. Never seen that in their lifetime. I can remember the first time I ever uh, felt just a bit of real old-time revival as the young preacher years ago. I was read up at a Southern Baptist church in Greenville where I seldom ever heard the emotion of an amen, to let alone anymore. Occasionally somebody would grunt out an amen, and then the next of the people would be craned toward uh, the uh, sound, wherever it might have come from. They were not accustomed to that kind of enthusiasm for the Lord. It's all right, you know, to shout out at a ball game, or to watch the Atlanta Braves get all excited and crush the man's hat in front of you and get all excited until you can hardly say how to your wife when you get home. But don't show any kind of emotion at church. That's just off limits, you see. But uh, if you ever have revival, you're going to have to use your memory. Wilt thou not revive us again? Don't you know David when he wrote that psalm? I remember the days when God had touched him on the back of the desert as he minded his father's sheep. And no doubt of a mind, but many times David meditated about God there away from the uh, rush of the marketplace and away from the television and away from the radio and away from the Atlanta Braves and didn't have anything but the Bible and but God there on the back of the desert with his father's sheep and in communication and fellowship with God, heavens sprang down and glory filled his heart. And I don't think David could have ever written the 23rd Psalm in any other kind of environment. I'm sure the 23rd Psalm was not written on the grandstands at the Municipal Stadium in Atlanta. No. The 23rd Psalm was written on the back of the desert by a shepherd lad who knew God when God moved. And my text implies memory. Now, some of you older people remember previous revival and the blessing of God came upon people. Great enthusiasm. I preached at a camp meeting over in Atlanta, Marietta, Georgia, a few years ago. And the Baptist pastor borrowed a Methodist campground. I think the Lord will forgive us. But anyway, I preached in that campground that time, a Methodist campground. 
And I preached one night, and an old-time, old-fashioned, old Methodist man came up to me and said, Young fellow, you are now preaching in the pulpit that Sam Jones preached in, the great Methodist evangelist. You're now preaching, he said, in the pulpit that Dr. Bob Jones Sr. preached in. And you named a half a dozen other men of renown that preached in that Baptist camp meeting way back down at the turn of the century. And that old man began to tell about how they would shout the praises of God and the people would rejoice and they'd come in there on wagons and tarry sometimes a whole week, bring their food, sleep down at night, the whole families, and they go home at the end of the week after a revival of a whole week in that old-fashioned Methodist camp. Methodists don't do that no more. You well know that. And they're dead in our day. Dead. Methodist churches are dead. And I'm sorry, but it's a fact that you know it's so. And I, that old brother began talking to me about previous revival in that camp, and I cried, Lord, do it again. Let me see something like that again in my own lifetime. A few years ago, I was preaching with Dr. Ernest Hancock, and I guess Dr. Hancock preached in this church for his death. And he said to me, I'm going to carry you down uh, to an old-fashioned Methodist campground down in the country. And he said, I'm going to carry you in the morning, but I want you to read this Methodist Advocate. And I picked up that Methodist Advocate. That's the official Methodist publication of the state of North Carolina. And he said, there's an article in this issue that I want you to read. And I read that article, and it told about a revival at that campground that I was going to visit the next morning. And how the people gathered in in their wagons and their families and prayed and fellowshiped and sang and preached the Word of God. Oh, the power would fall in that campground and said, uh, not a Baptist publication, but in a Methodist publication. And it told one night the Methodist bishop was preaching. He's the number one Methodist preacher of the whole state. Gave the man's name. I've forgotten the name now. Back in the other century, back in the 1800s. But anyway, the Methodist bishop was preaching, and in his sermon, the power of God fell. Now, we Baptists don't know much about that, and Methodists know nothing. But the power of God fell on that camp meeting that night, and that bishop got so full of God. Not a preacher, not just an ordinary lay preacher, an ordinary evangelist, but the bishop of the Methodist church, according to their own publication, got so full of God until he climbed a hundred-foot pine tree. In the enthusiasm of the joy of God. And the next day, Dr. Hancock came into that old campground, rotted down, wasted down, and sure enough, there are those towering pine trees that I read about. Still there. Right here in your state. And I saw the broken down houses the people camped in. I saw the old tabernacle rotted and broken down now and unused and forsaken by the Methodists a long, long time ago. And I cried out as I walked among those grounds, Lord, do it again. It implies memory of past victory. I brought, I, I preached at the 99th annual uh, camp meeting at Brandywine Camp in Wilmington, Delaware about 20 years ago. I like the camp, but I don't like the name, Brandywine. But anyway, I, I was invited to preach in the 99th annual session. They had a tabernacle right in the middle of the, build, uh, the little uh, uh, combo, uh, compound about the size of this auditorium. And then alleyways and three-room uh, shotgun houses so forth uh, uh, built down those avenues. And people come out of Wilmington way back in the other century, in the early part of the century, and they'd camp there, sometimes stay all the summer. And they'd have one week of meetings after another. One day I preached, and an old lady said, Come to my cabin. 
I want to show you some things. And I went to her cabin. She must have been 80 then. A real old woman. And she got out some faded newspaper articles and some faded brochures and advertising material of past revivals at Brandywine Camp. She brought out a, bro a folder, a brochure, advertising the meeting that Dr. Bob Jones Sr. preached in. And I looked at his picture with a heavy a head of black hair, a st large, strong man, and a marvel at Dr. Bob Jones Sr. Must have been back toward the beginning of the century. And brought out a newspaper, an old Wilmington, Delaware newspaper, faded with the years, written, printed many years before radio or the TV. And uh, gave a report of a camp there at Brandywine, uh, during which Dr. Charles Weigel, and I'm sure our singer knows that name, and Bobby knows that name. Dr. Weigel wrote, No One Ever Cared to Be Like Jesus. Very beautiful song. You know, he told about the camp that Dr. Weigel preached in. And I read that article in that faded Wilmington, Delaware newspaper. And it said that one night Dr. Weigel was preaching and the power of God fell. Now we Baptists are a little bit ashamed of that kind of terminology. But the newspaper man put it down that way. The power of God fell, got in the service and the people rejoiced and Dr. Weigel got full of the glory of God and climbed one of the poles inside that tabernacle. I'm telling you the truth. That's Dr. Weigel. The famous singer and song author who wrote 200 famous gospel hymns. The power of God got on him, and he shouted the praises of God. Oh, how we need a touch of that in our day. It wouldn't hurt you. It didn't hurt Dr. Weigel. He lived to be 95 years old, and he died. Amen. It hurt him a bit. Not a bit. Won't hurt you. Not at all. Revival. We need that kind of revival. I was preaching up in, in Princeton, West Virginia a few, uh, two years, three, two, two years ago. And I was preaching at, uh, at, uh, Princeton, just out of Princeton. But I was staying in Princeton at the Holiday Inn. My wife was with me. And I, I was preaching with Jimmy Jones. You may know Jimmy Jones there at uh, Princeton, uh, uh, singer. And, uh, and, and Brother Jones said, Preacher, the grave of Robert Sheffy is just 25 miles away from where you stand. I mean, I said, the Robert Sheffy, about whom Bob Jones produced the film, and you've seen the picture. How I many of you have seen Sheffy? Oh, wonderful, one of the most wonderful gospel pictures I've ever seen in my life. And I said to my wife, we must visit that grave. And I checked out of the motel at 12 noon on Saturday. We were going home on Saturday night anyway. And we drove out to, to a little town named Parisburg, Virginia, just out of Princeton, north of Princeton. And then five miles out of Parisburg, Virginia, the little Wesleyan church where his funeral was conducted. And I doubt seriously if that little Western church would seat as many people as your choir, a little small Western church, old ancient building uh, in which they held the funeral for Robert Sheffield. said it took about five days to bury him. So many people came, wanted to see his body, fill the whole side of the hill, and it took uh, uh, days for people to come from North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina to attend his funeral. He died in 1902. And I, I, I walked into that little Methodist chapel, having seen the picture, about Sheffield. And I cried in my soul as I walked into the little church, Lord, do it again. Do it again. I left the little church and walked up into the cemetery where his body is buried alongside the body of his wife. And there was a, a marble shaft about five feet high with his name and date of birth and date of death. And there was two words, or three words, in his epitaph. And you'd never guess what those words were. You'd never guess. The Robert Sheffield, if I'm, and I have the book, and I've, I've read a, a great part of the book, 
uh, was born of well-to-do parents in Abington, Virginia. He was not just an ordinary person like me and you, a poor parish, but he was born of well-to-do, sophisticated, educated uh, parents, uh, blue blood, so to speak, uh, back in Abington, Virginia. Uh, but he got a good case of religion. And he got such a good case of religion until his own people uh, turned on him and forsook him. And he became a Wesleyan Methodist itinerant preacher. Traveled up and down the Shenandoah Valley from Abingdon to Roanoke, Virginia, preaching on horseback, holding meetings, camp meetings up and down those hills. Literally gave himself to God as an evangelist back in the other century. Died in 1902. And he was forsaken by his own wealthy relatives. They didn't take on to his religion. But he lived such a noble life and such a sacrificing life, stern revival, spent all his life, stern revival among those ill people like 50, 75 years ago, 100 years ago, in fact. And on the tomb rock, the epitaph said, the poor loved him. What about that? The poor loved him. No man could live and get that kind of an epitaph, epitaph honestly could get a greater one. What a tremendous thing to have said. The poor loved it. And I stood by that shaft over the grave of Robert Sheffield in my soul. I cried, Lord, do it again. Give us that kind of revival in my lifetime. My text implies memory. We need to remember the revivals and the blessings of yesteryear. Now let's bring all that in to gospel life. You folk have a noble heritage. You're not, you're not a young church anymore. You're not a small church anymore. You're the largest Baptist church in the state of North Carolina, uh, Sunday school-wise and attendance-wise. And I commend you. But in your past, I know your past, not like Dr. Robinson knows it, but I know your past pretty well. I've worshipped with you when you were small. I've worshipped with you when you were poor. And I've worshipped with you since you've been big. And I've worshipped with you since you have, uh, well, wealth, quotation marks. I, I've worshipped with you in all kinds of situations, you see. And I know you relatively well. All of you at Gospel Light need to use your memory. At prayer time before, at singing time before, at revival time before, at altar time before, when the saints of God will rejoice, when the saints of God would shout, when the choir would sing with enthusiasm, when the preacher would get beside himself in the pulpit, revival implies memory. Lord, do it again. Wilt thou not revive us again, said the psalmist. And my text implies memory of past revivals. Then second, my text identifies the person of revival. My text says, wilt thou not revive us again. Now may I say to you, my friend, without any fear or contradiction, revival is a work of God and not man. Man can't bring revival no way. If men could build gospelite Baptist church, there'd be a thousand churches like this one in North Carolina, but there's only one. You are a, a demonstration of what I've just said. Men do not build churches. Men do not produce revival. It can't come that way. I've been in Greenville a long, long time, and I've watched all kinds of meetings. I've participated in many kinds of meetings. 
If I never have the opportunity to participate in another citywide campaign, I lose no tears. Those we have participated in amounted relatively to nothing. We've never had a revival through that channel in Greenville in the 43 years of my, of my preaching. And we've had great men come to our city. But it just didn't done that way. Just didn't done that way. If I knew that I could go to the bank and borrow $250,000 and then invest that money in a, in a tabernacle or in a tent or in the municipal auditorium, bring in good singers like you have here this week, good uh, musicians as you enjoy, and bring in the best preacher you could find anywhere in the world with all the noble characteristics of an evangelist or a revivalist. If I knew that could be done and we could have a revival in Greenville, I'd sign that note at the drop of the hat. I'd be glad to borrow the money and become responsible myself. But it doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it. It hadn't done it in 43 years. One evangelist came to our city and in 10 days spent $357,000. 10 days. He said in the paper he had 7,000 decisions. We found one. I know of no church in my city that had any result from that meeting except ours when we had one person. Well, thank God for that one. He's dead now with the Lord. And I'm sure glad he got right with God in that meeting. But 7,000? No. No. Far as I can tell, the meeting was negative. Right. Relatively speaking. That isn't the way it's done. If I know anything at all about revival, revival is of God. Don't you forget that. We're totally dependent upon God. We can't advertise it. We can't promote it. We can't coerce God. We can't prepare for it. We can't plan it. There is no formula. When I was a young preacher, I preached Second Chronicles 7.14. But I, that didn't bring revival unless God said it, you see. Now, that's a good thing. Second Chronicles 7.14 is wonderful. But that doesn't bring revival unless God sees it in His own mercy to give revival. Revival is God. And the psalmist said, Wilt thou not revive us again? Men can't do it. I can't do it. No man can do it. Only God can give revival. You both get gospel light. You've been blessed of God. Have you thanked God lately? You've been favored, highly favored of God. Have you thanked God lately? You are elected to demonstrate to North Carolina. Have you thanked God lately for that election? God has used you in a signal way. Most unusual way. The most unusual way in this generation in North Carolina. Have you thought to thank God lately? Oh, we've done it in gospel life. I don't think you believe that. I would not indict you with that. I would not say you, you feel that way. I don't think there's that much pride in you. And I know there's not that much pride in, in Brother Robinson. And I don't believe these deacons would feel that way. I believe that gospel light, I think I know you well enough to believe that you'll be first to get on your knees and say, Lord, you did it. What has been done, you did it. No. Revival is of God, and my text clearly identifies the person of revival. I don't know of a preacher in America that can bring a revival except God enabled him to do so. Not one. And I know all the preachers. I mean, those that are fundamental like we are.
But I don't know of one that can bring revival unless God blesses his effort. We're totally dependent upon God. Don't you ever forget that. And any blessing God may give you, it's not because of your gift. It's not because of your dynamic personality. It's not because of your environment. It's not because of your wealth. If God gives you any blessing, it's his mercy extended towards you. Then number three, my text sets forth the fruit of revival. Now I want you to note this very clearly. My text says, Will thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Not one word of evangelism in that text. Not even the remotest suggestion. No evangelism of that. That thy people, that's deacons and teachers and preachers and Baptists, that thy people, choir members and, and archers, that thy people may rejoice. That there's the fruit of revival. That my people may rejoice in thee. And I submit to you without any contradiction that the fruit of revival is joy in the hearts of God's people. Now, I think there'll be other things that'll go along with it. But according to my text, the basic fruit of revival is that thy people may rejoice. God wants his people to rejoice in him. Give God the glory and praise his name. And not to do that is tyranny. Not to do that is rebellion. Not to do that is anarchy. Not to do that is to deny pain. And to deny the blessing of the blesser, the blessed Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Let God have his way that our people may rejoice. The fruit of revival is joy in the hearts of God's people. Some of you folk have had the blessing of God in your heart and you've gotten to be a big church and, and rather sophisticated. You have a uh, day school with trained teachers and cultured and fine teachers and you felt like praising God and you thought to yourself, I wonder what the congregation might think. Forget it. These teachers don't run this church. I said that to you last night, I think. Thank God for the teachers. Thank God for the educated. Thank God for the wealthy. But when you sinners get a blessing, forget that crowd. And give God the glory. And bless his holy name, you see. This is God's house. And you rejoice. And it wouldn't hurt the teachers to do that a little bit either. The fact of the matter is, the teachers ought to lead the sinners to do that. Us sinners, you know, your teachers ought to lead us to do that, because it's taught in the Bible. And your deacons ought to lead us sinners to praise God, because it's taught in the Bible. That thy people may rejoice. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knbbc.com for Christian music you can trust.